Hi, and welcome to this week's edition of the Ocean View Podcast. No matter where you're at in our country or around the world, we thank you so much for taking the time to listen. Now sit back and enjoy this week's message. The, uh, the feeling of hunger can either make you extremely focused or extremely moody. And he was beginning to feel a little of both. Focused on the fact that he needed to get Jesus out of there. Also focused on the fact that he needed to get him out of there because he was getting so hungry. I mean, the crowds just kept coming and Jesus, he got stuck in this recurring pattern of of healing people which would draw a crowd, which would bring out more ailments that he would take pity on and then fix, which would bring another crowd with more ailments. He would take pity on them and draw another crowd. And Philip is watching going, I'm starving. So finally he speaks up and he goes, Jesus, we we really, uh, we should let these people go get something to eat because they're probably starving, which was code for Jesus. I need to go get something to eat because I'm starving. It's this story we've heard about a million times before. If you grew up in the church, even if you didn't, the feeding of the 5,000. It's the story we're jumping into today. And I know we're several chapters into the gospel of John But that's where the story starts. John, the author, as an older man, tells this story as he looks back on his life. He says, when Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming, he had been healing at this point, drawing in more and more people. He said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. And Philip answered him, It would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far will they go among so many? And Jesus said, Have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. Then Jesus took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, Gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. Will you join me in a word of prayer? God, as we jump into your word this morning, we pray that you would speak to us, that you would help us to see you, that you would teach us, that you'd guard my mouth and take over my tongue. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, my name is Tommy, and I'm one of the pastors here. I love getting to be one of the pastors here. Sometimes I feel like I'm in a little bit over my head because the pastors here are so incredible. Pastor Terry's gone this morning. He's in Europe, in Sweden. He's been invited to speak there, and he's taken Pastor Aaron with him. Together, they're, they're over there um, just administering God's gospel uh, to the people of Europe. Uh, and Pastor Stephen is out today. I, I, I look sometimes around the table. I'm on staff with these guys, and I look at Terry, and as good of a communicator as he is, he's an even better leader. Like, he's just an incredible, leadership is his gift. And I sit there, and I'm like, wow, we are so blessed to have such a leader on the team. Pastor Aaron has this incredible gift of, of strategy, of being able to think through processes and things, and just seeing things miles ahead. I'm so grateful for that gift. Pastor Stephen has this commitment to excellence and a commitment to integrity. And I just love that 
about him. As I'm speaking, I'm realizing I actually have a bone to pick with Pastor Stephen. I'm, I'm sorry, but I've been telling him for like seven years now that I played in high school the tuba. Like many of you may not have realized that, but I could be playing up on the stage this morning. I put one of those big sousaphones on and play the tuba. I didn't start out in high school playing the tuba. I started out playing trumpet, which I was not good at. The mouthpiece is so small. My lips are so big. And I had one of those band instructors who was like, you know, um, rather than saying I was bad at, tu- at trumpet, he did this like Jedi mind trick where he was like, I have like 20 trumpet players. What I need is a tuba player. And I was like, you're in luck because that mouthpiece is huge and so are my lips. So I could pick this up right now. And he goes, if I get you lessons, will you learn to play the tuba? I was like, yeah, I'll learn to play the tuba. And that kind of became my thing in high school. I remember when we got band jackets. A lot of other people who are athletes get letter jackets. We got band jackets and you get to pick out, you're like, write down your first name. That'll go on your jacket. I'm like, awesome, Tommy. And it's like, write down your instrument. That'll go on your jacket. It's like, awesome, tuba. So for four years of high school, I was Tommy Tuba. I don't think anyone knew my real name. My, uh, my sister married a guy that I was in marching band with, and now his kids call me Uncle Tuba. They, I don't think they know my real name. Like, they've come to church before and been like, where's Pastor Tuba? And you guys are all like, I don't know who Pastor Tuba. I'm Pastor Tuba. I played t- And I remember that first day of, like, trying to learn how to play the tuba when the lessons start and they put the sheet music in front of you. And I'm looking at all this advanced stuff and I'm going, I don't even know where to begin. Like, I don't even know how to start this thing. I, the, I am so out of my league here, out of my element. That had to have been how the disciples felt that day. They've got all these people, and, and Jesus is, is expecting them to minister to the people, and they must have just felt really, really, really overwhelmed in this story that we just looked at that is, in, is recorded in all four of the Gospels. I realize that gospel is a term that we toss around a lot, but it's this Greek word, um, euangelion, which is really fun to say, and it literally means good news. And I love that this is the word God chose to pour meaning into that existed before the New Testament times, but he filled it with so much more meaning. In the Old Testament, it was this word that when, when, when soldiers would go off to battle and the cities and towns they came from were waiting for news to arrive back from the battle, back from the war. This is before the internet and Twitter and cell phones and satellites. They would wait literally for news from the battle. Often many of these towns and cities and villages would have somebody standing on a watchtower just watching for someone who would run back from the battle to proclaim good news. They often said they could tell by how they were running, whether or not the news was good or bad. And if it was good, they would yell, Uangelion, Uangelion, and people would gather around to hear the good news. This is why Isaiah said, as Pastor Terry spoke on last week, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. When you're standing there waiting to hear good news or to see if there's good news coming, those feet look awfully beautiful to you. This is the word that God chose in the New Testament to pour meaning into when he tells us the fact that the good news uh, that he offers is the good news that God has done everything necessary to have a relationship with you. You know, every other religion on the planet teaches that we have to try to climb our way to God, and then Jesus comes, and he goes, actually, God has done everything necessary to get to you. And the Bible is just the book that tells us that story. 
It tells us everything Jesus did, everything God did to get to you. It's an awfully big book, but it can really be separated into three separate acts. And maybe you've heard me share this before. Act one, God creates. That somewhere back at the beginning, there's this uncreated creator who speaks the world into existence. Planets and galaxies and animals. And then the highlight of his creation, the crescendo at the end, are human beings, you and me, who he designed to live in relationship with him. But guess what? You don't have that. And that's because of what happens in Act 2. In Act 2, in Genesis 3, sin enters the picture. And sin contaminates entirely. God has to part ways with us. He cannot be in the presence of sin. But even in Genesis 3, verse 15, God predicts there's going to be somebody who's going to come and he's going to put all this back together again. And guess what? That's Act 3. Everything from Genesis 3 to the Gospels is everything God did to get to you. That's what the story is all about. And he did everything necessary to have a relationship with you. Every other religion teaches what you must do to get to God. Christianity is the only religion that teaches everything God did to get to you. And that's the story of the Bible. And guess what else? That is really good news. The Gospel is good news. It's the good news that God did everything necessary. It's also this. It's a literary device. It's a term describing the four different accounts of Jesus' life. Now, there are these guys, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and each one of them writes a perspective about the life of Christ. And some of them include certain stories, and some of them don't include others. And we think that Mark probably wrote first, and his gospel was interviewing St. Peter, who was probably in prison, and Mark is asking him all these questions and writing it down. And John probably wrote last, towards the end of his life, as he looked back over his life. He's exiled on Patmos, had a lot of time on his hands, and he writes the gospel of John. Very seldom do all four gospels tell the same story. In fact, it only happens twice. One is the resurrection. All four of those guys tell that story. The other is the feeding of the 5,000 that we read this morning. I remember learning that as a kid, going, wait, 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 all four of these guys tell that story? This is a really important story. John tells us, as evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, this is a remote place and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so that they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. And Jesus replied, they don't need to go away. You feed them. It's this impossible task. It's a pretty big crowd. John tells us it's about 5,000 men, which that's just men. You've probably heard this before, but if each man there was connected to one lady and one child, that's 15,000 people, and that is a conservative estimate. Most of those guys probably had lots and lots of kids. So there's, let's say, 15,000 people all hanging around. And Jesus is one of the things I love about him. He just sort of throws gas on the fire, right? He goes, oh, they don't need to go find food. We should feed them. And then he looks at Peter, and he goes, wait, 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 Peter, you should feed them. And it says that he said this because he already had in mind what he was going to do. I read that verse this week, and I clamped down on it. Jesus already had in mind what he was going to do. 
He was not thrown off by this. He was not confused by the size of the crowd. It's as if everything in Philip's life had been arranged, staged, preset, predetermined, intentional, purposeful, not the result of accident, not the result of chance or chaos or disorder or randomness or lack of control. It had all been leading up to this moment for Philip. And what if the same is true of you? What if everything in your life was on purpose, intentional, staged, preset, not chaotic, not random, not haphazard? What if there is a God behind all of it that already has in mind what he's going to do? I think there are so many times in life we see things spinning out of control all around us, this chaos, and we go, man, I can't see the sovereignty in this. I cannot see the plan of God. I cannot see the activity of God in this. And do you trust that maybe God already has in mind what he's going to do? He's up to something. The same as Jesus is in this story. He's up to something. And man, the challenge for us is just choosing to live as if that's true. I was reading this passage in Ephesians this past week, and it has been stuck in my head ever since I first came across it. Paul writes, In him you were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything, circle, underline, highlight, everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. In him you were chosen. I know people love to sit around and talk about, like, did God choose you beforehand? Or what about that guy over there that's never heard? And I kind of go, that's all irrelevant. It's fun to talk about, but it's irrelevant because you have heard. You have heard. You have been chosen. You've been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything. Circle, underline, highlight, in conformity with the purpose of his will. That means there is a plan going on. He is doing something. And everything you experience, though he may not cause it, he may allow it to bring about the conformity of the purpose of his will. Everything you experience. I love that word everything. Everything. Everything you experience. Every grief you grieve. Every loss you face. Every challenge you encounter. What if all of it is for the purpose of his will? Something that he is doing. At the end of the day, the question is, is God sovereign? When we speak of the sovereignty of God, we're referring to his right to rule and reign however he sees fit. And it's that word however that I struggle with sometimes, if I'm honest. Because there are times when I'm looking at things around me and I go, this doesn't make sense to me, God. We live in a world where A plus B equals C. And when you see C, you want to see A and B. And you expect God to give you an explanation. But can you worship a God who is not obligated to explain himself to you? He's doing something. Sometimes he lets us see what he's doing. Oftentimes he does not. Can you worship him anyway? There's a promise there in Ephesians 1 that it is all, everything, everything is working out to the conformity of the purpose of his will. That means your circumstances, your background, your family situation, your losses, your heartaches, your tragedies, your wounds, your history, your mistakes, even your sin. 
sometimes we have this image up there of a God who is just pacing back and forth nervously, wringing his hands, hoping we don't mess up, because if we mess up, then we sideline his will. Your sin cannot thwart the sovereign will of God. It is serious, but it cannot control God, because God's sovereignty is bigger than even your sin. God's sovereignty is even bigger than your mistakes. His sovereignty is bigger than your past, and his sovereignty is bigger than your ability to get it. His sovereignty is bigger than your ability to see what he's doing or even your desire to see what he's up to. We want to know what he's up to. We want to know what he's doing. But sometimes you just have to trust that all of this is headed somewhere and he's still sovereign. And we can trust him. You see that, that promise in Ephesians 1? His commitment Though it's to us, ultimately, it is not to us at all. As big of a deal as you are, and you are, but his commitment is to his own glory. I love that. That's so much more dependable than me. He's going to work out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will in order that we might be for the praise of of his glory. His commitment is to his own glory, his own reputation. He's got a lot at stake here. And he's going to work out all this stuff in your life because ultimately his own glory is at stake. And he is very committed to his own glory. So Jesus nudges Philip. He goes, they shouldn't leave to get some food. We should feed them. You should feed them. You give him something to eat. And he gives him an impossible task. It's like, I don't, 15,000 people, I don't even know where to start. And I bet that most of us feel like Philip. The Bible says that God did everything necessary to secure salvation for us, right? That he secures salvation for us. That when Jesus died on the cross, God placed on him the sin of us all. And on that Good Friday evening, God wrote the check that would buy our freedom. And on Sunday morning, when he raised him back to life, that check cleared. And that is available to all of us. And then instead of like giving it to all of us, instead of just announcing it and heralding it and writing it in the clouds, Jesus goes, actually, you tell him. You spread the good news. There was a question in our neighborhood group material last week that I just got stuck on for a minute, and someone in our group helped me with it. It's like if, if God secured salvation for all of us, why did he put us in charge of telling people? Why didn't he just announce it? And I don't know the answer to that, but I see the parallel in this story. Jesus could have fed all those people. He goes, Philip, I want you to do it. You do it. I don't know where to start. Most of us feel like Philip, don't we? I don't know where to start. How in the world am I going to proclaim this message to a lost and broken world that God did everything for you? And then I see the little boy. Let me ask you a question. 15,000 people there that day, at least, probably more. Do you think that little boy was the only little boy who carried a lunchbox? I bet you a lot of kids packed lunches that day. And parents, they just didn't see how it would help. And you've got this one little boy with a lunchbox. And, and Andrew stumbles over to him and is like, oh, we got this. I don't know what you can do with it, but we got this. There wasn't just 
one little boy with a lunchbox. There was just one little boy who said, you're welcome to it. I don't see what you can do with it, but you're welcome to it. He was not the only one with the lunchbox, but he was the only one who opened his lunchbox. And I see this truth in that, that you are not responsible to fill someone else's lunchbox. You are just responsible to open yours. Out of all those kids and all those people, this little boy was probably thinking, nah, I, don't, I don't know how this can help. But he stood up and said, you know what? Have your way. Take it. Whatever you want. I'm available. I don't see how it's going to help, but you are welcome to it. And I wonder what would happen if we acted and lived the same way. God, I don't even know where to start. But you're welcome to this. Because what you have is not nearly as important as what you do with what you have. A lot of us don't have, we don't know where to start. We don't have enough food to feed 15,000 people, but we do have a lunchbox. You're not responsible to feed them. You're just responsible to open the lunchbox. I was sitting in that band room that, that day about 15 years ago, 20 years ago. And this guy who had been hired to teach me how to play the tuba, he's sitting across from me, and I had my big gold tuba up on my knee, and he had his on his, and he's wearing some eyeglasses and big old mouthpiece. I'm like, awesome. And he goes, uh, I'm here to teach you tuba. And I was like, great. I want to learn how to play it. And he goes, okay, play a note. And I was like, I don't play tuba. <laughs> and he goes, I know, I'm here to teach you how to play it. I was like, awesome. He goes, play something. I was like, I don't, I don't play tuba. Like, I don't know how to make a note. And he goes, yeah, I know. I'm here to teach you how to play it. I was like, what is happening right now? There's like this total breakdown. I don't, I don't know how to play tuba. And he goes, I know. I'm here to teach you. I was like, great. He goes, play something. I was like. And he took his tuba off his leg, took his glasses off, and he goes, listen. If you don't play anything, I can't do anything. If you make a note, if you make a sound, Chances are I can take it and shape it and bend it and turn it into something from which I can teach you. But as long as you refuse to even put air through that instrument, I can't do anything. He goes, I don't need you to play everything, but I do need you to play something. I feel like Jesus says the same to us, right? I don't need you to do everything, but I do need you to do something. And here's what I think is so true when I read Scripture is that you will almost always overestimate the large steps and underestimate the small ones. This little boy with his lunchbox, like he's looking at this crowd, right? And he could have overlooked the fact that he had something right there, something small. We will almost always overestimate the large stuff and underestimate the small. Sometimes it's the faithfulness with the small stuff that reaches out to the large and we don't know what's at stake. It's a negative example, but think about King David in Scripture. We've been looking at his life on Monday nights in our college and young adult study in the student center. King David, the one who who the prophet came and anointed king and, and, and had to be the shepherd king, the shepherd boy who played the harp and waited his turn to be the king and never opposed Saul, even though he had opportunities for him. You've probably heard his story. The same David that killed Goliath with a sling and a rock. This famous, famous king who did so much for God, so much for securing the territory and expanding the empire, so much for God, and he overlooked something in his, one li- in his life, in his personal life. 
And the ripple effects from that just go on and on and on and end up splitting the empire. There's one verse about King David's parenting. I don't know if you ever caught it in Scripture. It's 1 Kings 1.6. It says, David did not see fit to interfere in the life of his kids. He just ignored it. And you see that happen, right? His oldest son assaults his own sister, and David does nothing. So the second oldest kills the oldest, and then he ends up dead. And then three and four squabble over the throne, and number three ends up dead. His whole family falls apart because David did not see fit to interfere in the life of his kids. This one area of his life, all the big things he accomplished for God, this one area of his life ends up splitting because of the ripple effect of it, the entire empire. We almost always over-evaluate and overestimate the big stuff and underestimate the small stuff, don't we? It's the small stuff that we, man, just the diligence in the small stuff too. This, by the way, is why Pastor Terry and Pastor Aaron are in Sweden right now. Many of you know that evangelistically, like the gospel has kind of, the lights of God's word have kind of gone out in Europe. And Sweden is no different. And so rather than hold some kind of grand crusade or festival, they've asked, you know, could you just, could you come in and just teach our families to be families again? Could you teach our dads to be dads and our moms to be moms, the spiritual leaders of their household? And through those small steps, the leadership in Sweden thinks that the, the gospel can make it back into the country again. It's the small stuff, not the big stuff. It's just being faithful in the small. So many of us, I think, we're reluctant to sign up for a mission trip because we think missions are for missionaries. We have no idea what hangs in the balance. I love how this story ends. Matthew 14, it says, They all ate and were satisfied. And I looked up this word because I'm a geek like that. The word for satisfied there doesn't mean they just got full. It's literally the same word that they used in stuffing animals, like to fatten animals, to fill, fulfill, or satisfy. They didn't just take enough to make it by. Like the people there gorged themselves and literally had to say, No more, I can't eat anymore. And then this kid ends up going home with 12 baskets full of leftovers. And I think the same is true for us. So many of us, like, we're scared about signing up for a mission trip, you know, because we're not sure what we can really contribute. But then we do it, and we have so much energy and thoughts about uh, what we can do for the people over there. And I've seen it so many times. We come back, and it's like, wow, this wasn't for them. This is for the 12 baskets full that I'd be bringing back. God uses things so often that you don't think matter to do something extraordinary. You just have to open up your lunchbox. You have no idea what he might do. So many of us, we don't sign up for missions because we're like, I don't, I don't really have anything to give. It's like, I don't think you need to know what you have to, you just need to open your lunchbox. Take a step. Take a step. See what God does with that step. And so often he's infinitely less concerned about where you're going than who you're becoming along the way. And he has 12 more baskets for you. Twelve baskets full. I've gotten to brag about some of our pastors here at Ocean View. Pastor Terry, Pastor Aaron, Pastor Stephen. There's one more pastor I want to tell you about. He became a Christian. He was studying how to be a cameraman. Videography was his thing. He thought he'd end up in the sports market, in the athletic field, filming athletic competitions and games and 
different sports stars. God got a hold of his heart. And somebody said, you should go on a mission trip. He goes, I don't go on mission trips. Missions is for missionaries. I'm not a missionary. I'm a cameraman, a videographer. But God began to chip away at his heart, and he became soft to that idea of going on a mission trip. So he signed up. They went down to South America, and there was this people group that they were attempting to reach with the gospel. It was an unreached people group, meaning the gospel had not crossed that barrier yet. And someone had the idea. They said, what if we, what if, what if we made a video where we present the gospel to them in their own language? Does, does anyone on the team have any experience with videos? And Pastor Jim goes... I know a thing or two about videos. He ends up creating or helping create this video that presents the gospel in their own language to an unreached people group. And before going viral was a thing, it went viral. Hundreds and hundreds of people became Christians as a result of this video. Jim tells a story where he's in a gas station somewhere and somebody he sees somebody watching this video and they're like, have you seen this video? And he's like, I know a thing or two about that video. Like, this thing went viral. It took off because someone signed up for a trip because I don't know what you can do with, with my lunchbox, but you are welcome to it. And God took that and he reached an entire group of people who would have otherwise been unreached. I love that. You guys, we've been walking through this series on missions together these past three weeks. We're moving next week into a series on the gospel where we just kind of set up today. I know many of us invite people back for Easter, but if you want, you should invite people back to this series on the gospel that kind of leads up to Easter. We'll explore that more. But as we close this series on missions, I want to encourage you to take a step. Outside each of these doors, you, there's information packets available about different missions trips that we are offering here this year at Ocean View. One is to Bulgaria. If you want to go over to Bulgaria, we send a team over there to encourage and train and equip some of the pastors and church leaders over there. It's a step you can take. Another one is down to Panama. If you want to be a, a part of a team that goes down there to get a vision for church planting in Panama, it'll be a smaller team, but we're sending a team there. We've got information available for you today. We've got a trip scheduled for Nicaragua that has two components to it. One is like sort of a beginner trip. If you've never been on a mission trip before, this is probably the one to sign up for. It's great exposure and it's family friendly. You could go with your family. You stay on campus. You see things. It's pretty incredible. And then there's another wing of that called the interior trip where you're actually going to have to be in shape and be able to put up with some stuff because you're going to go into the jungle. We, of course, have the All Nations Cafe that you can sign up for. We are celebrating some 50 people that signed up for it last week, and that's awesome, but we need more. Don't sit there and think missions is for missionaries. God doesn't expect you to fill somebody else's lunchbox. He just expects you to open yours. So don't leave without taking a step. You have no idea what hangs in the balance. Will you pray with me? Jesus, thank you. Thank you for buying our freedom, for purchasing and securing our salvation. And then for allowing us to be the ones who proclaim that message, that good news into the world. 
Father, for anybody who's sitting here wondering what they could possibly contribute, Lord, I just pray that you would warm their heart right now to the idea that all they got to do is open their lunchbox and watch what you do with that. Father, help us to be a church that's on mission, that's serious about reaching the world with this story, this wonderful, wonderful story of redemption. We love you, Jesus. We pray all of these things in your name. Amen. Thanks so much for listening to today's podcast. If you would like more information about the ministries at Ocean View, or if you'd like to speak to someone directly, you can visit our website at www.ovbc.org. Thanks again for listening. Have a great day.